Donald Trump takes his campaign into a New York City courthouse. The former president attends day one of his civil fraud trial. His lawyers play to an audience of one and make the same arguments that the judge has already picked apart. Former Manhattan District Attorney Cy Vance and former U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, Bree Perara, are standing by with their reaction. And they're coming up first. Plus, prosecutor turned Congressman Dan Goldman joins me live to discuss the spectacle and the substance of what played out in his district in Manhattan today. Also tonight, breaking news as Congressman Matt Gates officially files his motion to kick House Speaker Kevin McCarthy out of his job. I'll ask Republican Congressman Ken Buck if he'll vote to remove McCarthy and what the future would look like without him. So the kickoff of Donald Trump's civil fraud trial in New York today was chock full of the kind of bluster that we've all come to expect from the former president. Not really a big surprise, but he can huff and puff all he wants. The thing is, in this case, Trump's day of reckoning has already come. The judge has already found him liable of fraud. He's already decided to revoke Trump's business licenses. And that's a massive blow to Trump's image of the self-made billionaire and real estate guru that he's presented himself as for decades. While his bravado may work in the court of public opinion, we've seen that play out a little bit in the Republican primary, it doesn't work in a court of law in the same way. As the lawyer for New York's attorney general said today, quote, while it may be one thing to exaggerate for Forbes magazine, you cannot do it while conducting business in the state of New York, nor should you be able to. It's now just a question of how much Trump must pay. That's what this trial is all about, the future of Trump's namesake company. In making their case today, the attorney general's team really pulled back the curtain, revealing exactly how the Trump company valued their properties. Their presentation included a deposition from former Trump lawyer Michael Cohen, who said Trump's asset valuations were inflated to accommodate whatever number Trump wanted his overall net worth to be. The goal was to use each of the assets and increase its value in order to get to the end result number. It was basically backing in numbers to each of the asset classes in order to attain the number that Mr. Trump wanted. To attain the number that Mr. Trump wanted. That's not exactly how it's supposed to work. See, the attorney general and her team are relying on facts and evidence and witness testimony to make their case, as is it's supposed to be in the court of law. But Donald Trump's audience today wasn't the judge. It seemed to be his MAGA base. In this bizarre political world we're living in, he thinks he can capitalize on his appearance in Manhattan courtroom. He may be able to in the Republican primary. Now, remember, The defendant we saw hunched over today with a scowl on his face, all hunched over, he's also the front runner for the Republican nomination. And that classic lie-filled and aggressive language we have seen him use at campaign events all across the country for years, that's what we heard from him each time he left the courtroom today. Even before the dust had settled, he and his campaign were already fundraising off of his court appearance. But it wasn't just Trump who was in full political salesman mode. It was also his lawyers. They argued this was victimless. No one was hurt here. The banks even made money. No big deal. Nothing to see here. According to reporting from inside the courthouse, Trump literally perked up when his lawyer, Alina Haba, delivered a fiery defense of the same exact falsehoods about his wealth that the judge had already rejected. 
For instance, she argued that Trump's Doral Golf Club in Mar-a-Lago could sell for as much as a billion dollars each, even though the court deemed those valuations fraudulent literally just last week. And let's not forget some of these other lies are pretty easy to disprove, like, say, the fact that Trump claimed his apartment in Trump Tower was three times the size it actually was, a discrepancy that the judge said, quote, can only be considered fraud. I mean, obviously, all it takes is a tape measure to figure that one out. All of this is a reminder that Trump has already lost in the court of law, and he knows it. So instead of putting up a real legal defense today, he's using the trial as a spectacle to push his campaign message. It's all a reminder of why the rich and powerful shouldn't be above the law, as New York Attorney General Letitia James said earlier today. Donald Trump and the other defendants have committed persistent and repeated fraud. Last week, we proved that in our motion for summary judgment. Today, uh, we will prove our other claims. My message is simple. No matter how powerful you are, no matter how much money you think you may have, no one is above the law. No one is above the law. Joining me now is Cyrus Vance. He's the former Manhattan district attorney. He spent a lot of time investigating the Trump organization and brought charges against the company and its CFO. Also with us is Preet Bharara, the former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. I cannot imagine two better people to talk to about what happened today. So, Cy, I want to start with you. Um, watching the trial today or hearing the reporting of it, what did you make of the legal arguments that were made by Trump's team? Well, first, let me say it's a pleasure to be on this show with Preet Bharara, my colleague and uh, U.S. attorney when, when I was in Manhattan. And uh, it's great to have him here and someone I respect a great deal. With respect to today, I think the lawyers are just uh, essentially uh, beating their heads against a wall and hoping that the message somehow resonates either with the Court of Appeals, which I think mm. is where they're looking, uh, uh, for rescue, if anywhere, mm-hmm. and in, in the court of public opinion to Trump's own supporters. But I, I think that uh, uh, in terms of moving their legal case forward or making it a headway with the judge, I think it was it fell on, on deaf ears. So, Preet, I know you've said before that the next step here could be the Court of Appeals, as your, as your friend here um, just referred to. This is all about how much money Trump will have to pay. How do you think that yeah. the judge in the room would have heard those, heard those arguments today? So let me also say <clears throat> um, it's an honor to be on your show, Jen, and, and also with my friend and colleague uh, Cyrus Vance, who I respect a great deal as well. Um, I, I think you had it right in the opening that the lawyers here are relitigating things that have already been decided in what lawyers call a partial summary judgment motion, that, you know, they're behind the eight ball in a very serious way, um, not only because the judge has found that there's liability with respect to one of the counts <clears throat> in the civil complaint, but also in doing so, made certain findings and, and made certain statements in the opinion that make clear what this judge thinks of the credibility, not only of Donald Trump, but of his lawyers, repeatedly says that there, was, there were filings made and representations made to banks and to insurance companies that were fabrications, not just exaggerations. At one point, the judge says, um, in response to arguments being made about the valuations of these assets by Donald Trump and his team, that this is a fantasy world, not the real world. So whatever arguments are going to be made are going to be made with a ju- you know, to a judge who's already looking at the parties, Donald Trump himself and his lawyers, through a lens of lack of credibility. So I think it's an uphill battle for them. 
In some sense, Jen, it's almost the same argument that the president is trying to make in defense of his criminal cases, mm. which is, believe me, what I was thinking. I thought this was all okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, with regard, as you mentioned, to his 10,000-foot apartment in Manhattan as opposed to the 30,000-foot feet that he claimed or his valuation of Mar-a-Lago at however many hundreds of millions of dollars uh, because it could be subdivided while not acknowledging that, in fact, there was a restrictive deed when he mm. got in there that he couldn't. And you could do with a tape measure. <laughs> it, 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 you know, it is uh, uh, it's it, it truly it's a fantasy world. Uh, and and I would say that I think that with all the litigation uh, that's going on, the walls are closing in around him. And however much bluster that he presents in the courtroom, uh, I think he has to be concerned that uh, his maneuvering room is really running out. And the attorney general and her team were obviously treating this like an actual case, right? Even if Trump's team was not. And Donald Bender, tr Trump's former accountant, uh, Mazars testified today. I know he's somebody that you have called before. Trump looked pretty uncomfortable um, during that during that moment. Why do you think it would be so upsetting? What, what would he have that would be upsetting to Trump? Well, I wasn't in court today, but obviously Mr. Bender was an, uh, was an accountant uh, who worked for the Trump organization and I think testified, uh, if, if I'm correct, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, that uh, he felt he was misled uh, and, and misled significantly. Mm -hmm. So uh, that, uh, you know, Donald Bender, you, he'll be cross-examined on he's trying to cover his own mistakes. There'll be all those arguments but those won't really, I think, have any sway with the judge. Uh, so, th so as Preet, I think, said, that's we're done on that. It's maybe he's making a record for the Court of Appeals. But when your accountant or some professional that you worked with for decades and who has a very inside knowledge of uh, the, your finances and how your business works, when that person basically says, I was lied to, that's relevant and important. They literally have the receipts and, and then some, a lot of paper. One of the things, Preet, that was striking to me today was Trump's behavior. I'm sure it was striking to all of us. I mean, he stood outside of the courtroom repeatedly attacking the judge with extremely aggressive language. Um, he said he should be disbarred, even charged criminally. It was crazy. Right. It, I want to ask you just to level set for anybody, for everybody here. It, if he was any other defendant, what would happen? Well, he might be sanctioned. Um, this is going on in, in some of the other cases that are of a criminal nature, where there's um, a request for a limited gag order in, in one particular matter. Um, he would, at, the, at a minimum, get admonished. And that may still happen here. It's a very unusual thing, and it's an odd trial strategy to sit there slumped in the courtroom, as you described him, uh, you know, with a, with a you know, sort of dejected look on his face, and then with great fanfare go out to the cameras and attack the very judge who's presiding over your case, which to me— because Trump is not stupid, um, although some people think he is. He's not. Um, that's, that's, to me, a concession that they've already lost with this judge. Mm. And he's making a record, as has already been said a couple of times, for the Court of, of Appeals, but also the Court of Public Opinion. And, and a subset of the Court of Public Opinion, the people who are already on his side. You don't go out—if you think you have a shot at being treated fairly um, or getting the, the, the result that you want and the outcome that you want— you don't go out there and talk about the jailing of the judge who's making that decision. And there's no jury here. He and his lawyers didn't ask for a jury. It might be different if you did that, but it's, it's, it's reprehensible behavior on his part. I don't think it will amount to much, uh, certainly not in the courtroom. 
I want this is just starting this trial. I should be clear. Today was the very first day. A source close to Tish James has said that Trump would be called to testify closer to the end, which makes sense. Do you think I'm going to start with you, Cy? He will testify and you've been a prosecutor. What would you ask him? Well, he's already taken the fifth amendment privilege in connection with earlier depositions in the case. So I think that gives you an, an indication of what he has thought up to now. Uh, I think he's also perfectly capable of saying he's going to do one thing and then deciding he's not. We've seen that a few times. And blaming, you know, the prosecutor and the judge as being biased, therefore forcing him again to take the Fifth Amendment. Uh, I, I I'd like to hear what Preet says, but there's part of him that I'm sure wants to see if he can tell his story and bluster his way through. Uh, but I think there's another part because he's he's a smart man that realizes that uh, he's not the Wizard of Oz. You know, he he can't value property at mm. uh, 500 times its value and have that be objectively reasonable uh, in terms of the judge's analysis. So it would not surprise me if he says, I'm here, I'm going to testify. But he takes the fifth at the end of the trial whenever he's called. Preet, you, you heard your friend Cy Vance here. We, we want to know what you think. Uh, do you think no, he, I, he says I, he's I, eager to testify? What do you think is going to happen? He's not eager to testify. He's never eager to testify. He says he is. He did this multiple times during the Mueller investigation. He's in uh, during um, other matters and unfolding investigations as well. He's actually afraid of testifying. He knows what will happen to him in a court of law where he can't filibuster. It's not a bank of cameras. Uh, and microphones outside a courthouse where he's dominant or a rally of his uh, in front of, you know, a, a bunch of supporters. Court of law is different. The other consequence, by the way, you know, t- two other quick things. One, his problem is not that he exaggerates a little, right? The problem is that he lies and exaggerates by a lot. Even the judge in this case, in the uh, summary judgment opinion, says, look, um, there's some concession that valuation of, of properties and assets is not necessarily a science. And you can be off by 20%, 30%, but not as, as I said, by 500 times or 500%. Mm. Um, he does that all the time. He does it in other parts of his life, too. The other consequence, by the way, for him not testifying, I don't think he will testify, is that I, I predict and expect that when the judge rules adversely to Trump, one of the bases on which he will do that is say, um, in a civil case, unlike a criminal case, he can draw an adverse inference against the party, against the defendant, Donald Trump, in this case, because of his refusal to testify based on the Fifth Amendment. So it, it gives the judge an added ability um, and, and uh, you know, appropriateness to find against Donald Trump if he does not testify. So in this sense, Donald Trump is damned if he does, damned if he doesn't. Cy Vance Preparara, please stay right where you are. I have many more questions. We have to sneak in a very quick break, but I have many, many questions. We'll be right back. The behavior that landed Donald Trump in a Manhattan courthouse today is anything but new. For decades, it's kind of been an open secret. Emphasis on open. That Trump inflates his value of his assets. He's kind of a, you know, swindler. That he lies about his personal, professional wealth. And as I was watching this all unfold today, I kept coming back to two questions. First, what took so long to get here? And second, why isn't this a criminal case? For what I want, what I, I'm going to bring back, uh, my friends who are still here, uh, former Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance and former U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, Preet Bharara. Obviously, you both have been embedded in this, unlike most people. I know, um, Cy, that you have said that um, your successor made a choice, uh, that he chose to pursue the Stormy Daniels case um, instead of this case. But it's not a binary choice. I mean, every office can do multiple cases at one time, Right. 
True. And when you were leaving, you've spoken to this before, you had gone pretty far in gathering what was needed for a criminal case to make the case. True. So are you disappointed that that's not been pursued? Well, I, 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 when you leave an office that you're elected to, you, it's no longer your office. And you have to, I think, acknowledge that there's a, and respect the fact that someone's come in and, and may not make the same decisions you made. I disagreed with his decision to, uh, to not support the furthering of the valuation and, uh, you know, economic crimes investigation that in, in, in that Tish James is playing out in court today. Um, and perhaps it's not over. Uh, perhaps this court, perhaps this trial will reveal through testimony leads that give uh, my successor confidence that whatever concerns he had about whether the case could be proven beyond a reasonable doubt are now over. But I think time has sort of overcome the moment of the valuation case that such as it was when I was in the district attorney's office, um, uh, because it's now been superseded by two or three federal criminal cases and another case in Georgia all of which are very serious, which have the, the, the potential of actual significant jail time for the former president. And I think, uh, I, and so I don't know what the appetite of, of my successor is to wade back into this area. But if you were still there, you would have brought a case, it sounds like. Well, I felt, um, let's just put it this way. I think that, the, that what Tish James has laid out for us and what the judge has concluded about what she has laid out uh, indicates that the valuation case is a strong case. Not, it, it's not, you know, all criminal cases, I think, are complex. This is complex and it's difficult, but that's nothing new. I mean, we charged Harvey Weinstein and tried him, and that was a terribly difficult case. Preet's done that in any number of cases. It's not, you, you know, you make your decision and then you, you uh, it's your job to make the decision. It's the jury's job to decide what they think of your decision and what you've met, whether you've made your burden of proof. Now, now, Pre, you were a bit of a very informed observer of all of this here because, of course, your successor uh, at the Southern District of New York also didn't pursue a criminal case here. Do you think, knowing what you know now, there should have been a criminal case pursued? Well, I don't know that there was a criminal case <clears throat> that the feds could have brought, that the U.S. Attorney's Office could have brought with respect to these things. Um, this matter that Tish James has brought is very specifically and concretely under uh, New York law, there's a very broad statute that, you know, makes it um, a bad thing and for which you can be held liable and penalized for false business records and uh, doing business under false pretenses and making these kinds of misrepresentations. But, but there was a decision um, not to prosecute uh, Donald Trump, uh, even though Michael Cohen was prosecuted for, with respect to the hush money payments. And I'm going to echo what my friend Saivan said, once you leave an office, whether you leave voluntarily or you're ejected by the president of the United States, as I was, you leave the office. And it's very difficult to judge um, someone's decision not to proceed with a case. When you do proceed with a case, and I've said this many times, you can judge the evidence, you can go to the courtroom, you can see what the arguments are, you can see what the counterarguments are, and you're in a position to evaluate. When a decision is made to decline a prosecution and walk away from a prosecution, it's much harder to judge that because you haven't been in the grand jury, you don't get the grand jury minutes. You don't know what the internal arguments were. Um, you don't know what the, what the presentations that were made by defense counsel might have been if those things happened. So I, I respect the judgments of, you know, both prosecutors, uh, 
that you discussed and, and, and alluded to in the state system and the federal system, because they're both smart, I think, thoughtful, deliberate people with integrity. And, you know, maybe one day we'll find out what some of the reasons are, but that's not how our system works. Now, technically, if they wanted to, and you don't know what your successor will do, he could reopen a criminal case within the, t- within the uh, timeline here. Assuming that the evidence still fell within the statute of limitations, he could. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't hold my breath on that. Mm-hmm. And I think he's been pretty definitive about that, as I was definitive about, I think, the work Mark Pomerantz uh, had, had, had done. And, uh, but... Uh, I, you know, I, I wish the best for the Manhattan DA's office and the Manhattan DA. Uh, I think he's made his choice. Uh, it was a, he was first up and uh, he took a lot of heat for that. And uh, I think the case that he is indicted has its own challenges. But I, you know, I, I think he's uh, convinced that that's the route that he was most comfortable going. Uh, Preet, as we're all trying to navigate, we're all playing. I've never wanted a law degree more. I would go to either of your law legal classes <laughs> if you were to teach them. Uh, as you're looking at all these legal cases and people are trying to navigate through them, what do you think from what you know is the strongest case right now? What, which poses the biggest threat to Trump? Well, so, you know, that question circles uh, around me all the time. Depends on what you mean. I think the most important case in terms of what it means in terms of the conduct and the severity of the conduct uh, is the January 6th case brought in D.C. I think probably the most readily provable uh, case, it has the, the fewest challenges in, in, in terms of how much evidence uh, they can bring to bear, and that streamlined is the Mar-a-Lago documents, the classified documents mishandling uh, case. Um, that's not going to happen for a while. The only one, the, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, it looks like the order of operations is that the Washington January 6th case will happen first, that trial will happen first, and then the other one. You could make an argument that you bring the easier, quicker, or, or push to bring the easier, quicker, more streamlined case first and sort of get that conviction under your belt, and that gives you some sort of momentum or confidence going forward, although there are different teams working on each of those matters. Um, I don't know if Sai agrees, but that, that's the one I think the, the Mar-a-Lago documents case is the strongest and easiest to prove. I, I completely agree with with Preet in terms of the you know, the, the severity of the cases mm-hmm. and the, the clarity of the presentation of the evidence. I think the case in Georgia uh, is uh, you know is is a case with a lot of um, merit to mm-hmm. the you know, the to making sure that conduct is accounted for mm-hmm. if you believe the evidence. Uh, but it's a complicated case with nineteen defendants and and the district attorney. Uh, made a conscious decision to indict a complicated case with lots of defendants. And she now, although she may have foreseen it, she now has cases going to trial very quickly against defendants that she probably would have preferred not to try first uh, because you create an entire record when you try that first Mm -hmm. case, which then can be used to pick apart the evidence at a subsequent trial. A lot of strategy involved. Cy Vance, Preeper, actual friends. We learned that tonight. I can't think of two better people to break this all down with. Thank you so much both for joining me tonight. Coming up, breaking news on Capitol Hill as Congressman Matt Gates officially files his motion to oust House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Will Democrats vote to save him? I'll ask Congressman Dan Goldman, who's standing by on set. The congressman joins me after a quick break.
We are following some breaking news out of Capitol Hill tonight. Congressman Matt Gates has officially filed a motion to kick Speaker Kevin McCarthy out of his leadership position. Gates had been threatening to hold a vote to remove McCarthy after he cut a deal with Democrats on a House spending bill to prevent a government shutdown. Here's Gates on the House floor tonight. Declaring the office of Speaker of the House of Representatives to be vacant. Resolved that the office of Speaker of the House of Representatives is hereby declared to be vacant. There was a bit of a machismo back and forth, but McCarthy had this simple three-word response. Bring it on. He said that before. Joining me now is Democratic Congressman Dan Goldman of New York. So you are probably blissfully uh, not in that caucus. Um, but I do have to ask you, I mean, your, your colleague, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, said she would vote to get rid of Speaker McCarthy. And just moments ago, Jerry Conley just told NBC News Democrats should let McCarthy fail. Do you agree with that? Well, I haven't been provided any reason to save Kevin McCarthy. Look at what has happened over the last nine months. He has shown no interest or willingness to engage in any bipartisan conversations. He reached a deal with President Biden on the Fiscal Responsibility Act, and then he went back against his own deal. And then he opened up a completely bogus, sham, baseless impeachment inquiry against Joe Biden and we're supposed to celebrate because he did the right thing one time this weekend and kept the government open. He's done nothing that would warrant me uh, not voting for a 16th time for the person who should be the Speaker of the House, Hakeem Jeffries. So it sounds like you would vote for a motion to vacate if I'm just reading between the lines. Unless there. something changes. And, you know, I think Kevin McCarthy has to figure out uh, if he wants to partner with Democrats or not. But uh, he's been a, a disastrous speaker for the last nine months. Now, in addition to your views and many of your colleagues' views, he's, he's lost some support clearly within his caucus. He might need some Democrats uh, to save his speakership. Do you think he'll try to gather some support from Democrats? Well, I, my suspicion is he absolutely will need Democrats. And the real open question right now is what does he do? Because if you play this out, it gets a little bit more complicated. If he relies on Democrats because he makes a deal with Democrats in some way, well, that may resolve his speakership right now, but he is going to have to legislate for another year. Every single time a rule comes up, he's going to need Democrats to pass a rule. So he will then have to enter into some form of coalition government. That's a bit of a challenge for Kevin McCarthy, a tightrope of sorts. Um, I want to ask you about the New York trial that took place today, because this took place in your district. You're sort of the connector between all of the chaos that's happening out there. Do you see a connection between Donald Trump's behavior and the behavior you see from someone like Matt Gates? Donald Trump is a mob boss down in Mar-a-Lago directing his soldiers in the House of Representatives what they should do. And that relates both to the shutdown and to the 90 people who voted against uh, the clean resolution, the continuing resolution. And it relates to the impeachment, which Donald Trump has uh, very actively encouraged because he wants retribution for his own impeachment and he wants to hurt his opponent, President Biden. This is, remember, the exact investigation that Trump tried to extort and coerce President Zelensky to do in Ukraine in 2019. President Zelensky had a backbone and stood up to Donald Trump. Kevin McCarthy and the House Republicans do not. So we are where we are right now because this is what Donald Trump wants. 
So you are obviously a politically savvy guy, but you have some serious legal credentials as well. As you were watching what was happening in the courtroom today, I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but it seemed to me like more of a political argument from Trump's team than a legal argument. What did you make of what was happening in there? That is exactly what I thought. Donald Trump is outside. His lawyer is even inside making all of these arguments about election interference and persecution and witch hunt and all this stuff. His lawyer is even making that inside. Those arguments would fail with a jury of 12 peers. Mm. But he doesn't even have a jury. It's just a judge. A judge could not care less about any of those arguments. And this is where the disconnect in Donald Trump's world is going to collide with reality Mm -hmm. because he operates in a fiction-filled world based on lies and brainwashing and cults. Um, But when he gets in a courtroom, There are different rules that apply, and he's not in charge, and he is going to have a serious comeuppance. A bit of a different set of rules in the legal system, it seems like. You know, this this trial is taking place in your district, as I I mentioned, and and Trump really issued some threats today against the judge, reiterated a lot of the angry, scary language we just can't become numb to. Do you have any concern about uh, what that's going to mean in your district? Have you anything you've heard today that makes you concerned about that? We've not heard any specific threats today, but this is an ongoing serious problem. Donald Trump is ratcheting up his rhetoric. It's a call and response. And we saw what happened on January 6th. He knows exactly what he's doing. And he even if he claims he doesn't, he has to know because of what happened on January 6th. And so when he starts insulting uh, Attorney General James or the judge or District Attorney Fonnie Willis or Special Counsel Jack Smith, he is fomenting violence. And I would call right now on my Republican colleagues to denounce this rhetoric. I don't care whether you support Donald Trump or you don't support Donald Trump. We cannot have this violent, threatening rhetoric coming from the front runner for to be president, former president, um, that has such an impact on so many people. And it is time for House Republicans, especially those who support Donald Trump, They can do it privately, but they need to tell him to cool it. It's a very powerful note to end on. I hope people heed your warning, hear your heed your ask. Congressman Dan Goldman, thank you so much for joining me here on set tonight. Up next, Donald Trump continues to use threatening language. We were just talking about this and his supporters continue to listen. I will offer some thoughts about that and an emotional warning from Attorney General Merrick Garland. And later, will Republican Congressman Ken Buck vote to kick Kevin McCarthy out of his job as speaker? I'll ask him when he joins me live in just a few minutes. We're back after this. So today we saw Donald Trump sitting in the New York courtroom for his first day of his massive civil trial about his decades-long record of fraud and his business practices. And he has become his pattern. The ex-president lashed out at his opponents, threatening both the prosecutor and the judge. This is a disgrace, and you're to go after this attorney general. This is a judge that should be disbarred. This is a judge that should be out of office. This is a judge that some people say could be charged criminally for what he's doing. He's interfering with an election. Donald Trump has done this over and over again, threatening anyone 
who tries to hold them to account. I mean, just last week in a filing in the federal election case in Washington, D.C., special counsel Jack Smith directly addressed what he called Trump's sustained campaign of prejudicial public statements regarding witnesses, the court, the district, and prosecutors. Smith laid out the slew of threats Trump has recently made to the judge overseeing the case, Tanya Chetkin, to prosecutors, including the special counsel himself, to Trump's own former vice president, Mike Pence, a witness in the case, and even to former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, who Trump suggested should be executed for treason. And the thing is, we've already seen the impact of his rhetoric. The New York Times reports that as a result of the increase in threats, top prosecutors on the four criminal cases against Mr. Trump now require round-the-clock protection. Now, we've heard so much of this crazy and aggressive language that it's easy to almost become numb to it. When everything is always at a 10 or a 10,000, however you want to think about it, it can be hard to identify what we should actually be alarmed about. And that's the point. It's a muddle of scary language and angry rants from Trump day after day. But we should not just be watching to see if Donald Trump will continue making outrageous threats. We know he will. What we need to be watching for is how his supporters are reacting to his threats, how they are echoing them and stressing the importance of following through on them. Just listen to how some Trump supporters in Iowa are are reacting to his extreme rhetoric against an apolitical four-star general, Mark Milley. I know uh, Trump's feelings about uh, Mark Milley, and I agree. uh, He he, he asked the Chinese, he alerted the Chinese, well, I'll let you know if we're ever going to invade. What? Why was he not in a, uh, before a firing squad within a month? Treason, treason, and we used to execute or, or imprison people for it. And all the treasonous actions I see now in this day and age is just throw it underneath the rug. Treason is treason. There's only one cure for treason. Now what is that? Being put to death. You're an enemy of your country. Being put to death. And it's not Trump himself picking up the phone to literally call on death threats to judges or prosecutors. It is people who are listening to him, following what they believe are his directions. So while nearly all the focus right now is on how Trump will be held accountable for the damage he has already done, the threat of Trump is not in the past. It is very much in the present. And we remain in a dangerous cycle with far too many Republican leaders enabling him and supporters listening to him. It feels like only a matter of time until some of them act. Attorney General Merrick Garland just issued an emotional warning about this very real danger. People can argue with each other as much as they want and as vociferously as they want. But the one thing they may not do is use violence and threats of violence to alter the outcome. An important aspect of this is the American people themselves. The American people must protect each other. They must ensure that they treat each other with civility and kindness, listen to opposing views, argue as vociferously as they want, but refrain from violence and threats of violence. That's the only way this democracy will survive. We are not yet writing the history books about the damage Donald Trump has done to our country and our democracy. He is still at it. He will continue to make these threats and his supporters will continue to listen to him. But these threats are not just Trump being Trump. They are heard as marching orders. As scary as it may be, I'm going to choose to listen to that emotional warning from Merrick Garland, and I hope most Americans of all parties will too. 
Coming up, Republican Congressman Ken Buck is standing by with his reaction to Matt Gates filing his motion to kick Kevin McCarthy out of the speakership. How will the congressman vote? I'll ask him next. Back to the breaking news we've been covering, Congressman Matt Gates has officially filed a motion to oust House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Even Gates has acknowledged he may not have enough votes to actually get it done. And you'll never guess who's been in his ear. Have you spoken to President Trump about this? I have. And what what was his advice to you? Uh, I think I'm going to keep that between the two of us. Joining me now is Republican Congressman Ken Buck of Colorado. Well, I keep saying this, but it's been a bit of a wild couple of days here in Washington. You've been at the center of a lot of it. So I want to start with just this news that we learned uh, just in the last hour. You've been very clear about your frustration with Speaker McCarthy. Um, If you had to vote right now, you're going to have to vote very soon on a motion to vacate. How would you vote? Well, I don't, fortunately, because I want to hear what Kevin has to say. Kevin promised a number to conservatives when he was running for speaker, um, $1.47 trillion. Then when he negotiated with President Biden the debt ceiling deal, he promised President Biden a $1.66 trillion deal. Uh, He has promised, for example, uh, he criticized Nancy Pelosi for uh, not holding a vote on an impeachment inquiry. And then he promised he would hold a vote on an impeachment inquiry. And then he announced an impeachment inquiry. Uh, he cannot be trusted. And and I want to understand why he acts the way he does before I make a final decision on how to vote. So what do you need to learn in the next 48 hours, though? Because the vote's going to be in two days. Is it a number on cuts he's willing to make as an end to the impeachment he, uh, inquiry? What, what would it be? Well, I want to know which one of his promises he's going to fulfill. If he's going to fulfill the $1.47 trillion promise, I'm interested in listening to more. He promised that we would do 12 separate appropriations bills by uh, September 30th. We did one up until the week before September 30th, and then we got another three done on that week. So um, I want to know what his schedule is, and I want to know how he's going to fulfill his promises. You're a bit of a fiscal hawk. I'm sure you won't mind me calling you that. It sounds like you're willing to give him a little bit more of a shot if he lays out a plan. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like what you're saying. But now he has 45 days or a little bit less at this point to get the rest of those 12 spending bills done. If he doesn't do that, are you going to rethink your support for him? That's been pretty a thing you've been pretty strongly feeling about. Well, I, I supported them through the 15 vote debacle at the beginning of the year. And, and it was because of the promises that he made that we would handle each of these appropriations bills separately. So, yeah, I want to hear what he has to say. You know, 45 days is just the first uh, CR, the first continuing resolution. There will be more. And, and it, uh, if we can get nine or 10 done in these 45 days and one or two left in, in one or two weeks, that's a great position to be in. I know you're not going to give me names for alternatives. You've said it's not you. Ken Buck is not on the list. But have you discussed with any of your colleagues alternatives to Kevin McCarthy? Oh, I think there are a number of alternatives. And no one wants to put their head up while Kevin is the speaker. No one wants to be the person who looks like they took him down. So they will rise if this motion to vacate passes you will start to see other names uh, of people that come up. Uh, obviously, Steve Scalise is the next in line. Steve has some health issues, but I think he has a huge amount of respect in, in the conference. It sounds like regardless of how you're going to vote, you think that the motion to vacate could pass. I do think it could pass. I think there are probably 10 to 15 uh, hard yeses on the motion to vacate. Um, I think there's another five or six people who are out there looking to see whether it's a close vote or not. 
Now, uh, another one of your colleagues, Matt Gates. there are reports not confirmed by NBC News that House Republican members are preparing a motion to expel Gates from the House if the Ethics Committee's investigation finds that he is guilty of the complaints filed against him. These are not reports from us. Is that a discussion? Are you aware of conversations about that? I, I am not. I think that is an empty threat. I think that's one of those things that uh, people bring up to distract from the real issue, which is Kevin McCarthy's credibility. I want to ask you about Donald Trump, because he was in a Manhattan courtroom today for his New York fraud trial. He, You previously said you would not support a convicted felon for the White House, um, something we coined the Ken Buck rule here. I don't know if you like that or not. But the judge in this case has already found that he committed fraud. Um, it's just a matter of how much he's going to pay. Should that disqualify him from serving as president? I, I don't know that a fraud case, a civil fraud case by itself does. I, I was talking about a criminal case. Um, I do think that, that people need to look at the behavior of of Donald Trump in determining whether he is the best candidate for president. I also think they need to look at the behavior of Hunter Biden to determine whether Joe Biden is the best candidate for president. But I think that overall, uh, the criminal trials are going to be much more significant in people's minds uh, than the civil fraud trial. Well, there are significant differences between the two. But I do want to ask you before I let you go just about the threats that we've heard from Donald Trump, because the rhetoric and the language we've heard in the courtroom today, but also we've heard from him out on the campaign trail, we know that it's dangerous. The threats are increasing. Your colleague, Dan Goldman, said that he wished more people would be more outspoken about that. What do you say to that? I was a prosecutor 25 years, Jen. I take the threats very seriously. And, and I'm, I, I, I think that if you're innocent, you act like you're innocent. And if you want to um, be president of the United States again, you respect the rule of law, you respect the process, and you show people that we have a criminal justice system that is fair in this country. Are you concerned about the rhetoric you're hearing from him outside of the trial, but the rhetoric you're hearing from him threatening not just judges, but elected officials, um, others? around the country. Yeah, I think it's immature. I think the president needs to do better when he is frustrated. Um, do what a lot of us do. Go into a room by yourself, yell for a little bit, and then come out and, and be the, the person the, that really personifies uh, what we want in a leader in this country. I wish more would speak out against that. Congressman Ken Buck, thank you so much for joining me here on set. You're from the great state of Colorado, where I have a lot of family. That does it for me tonight. We'll see you back here on Sunday at noon and next Monday at 8 p.m. 